This is episode 74 of OutlanderCast with Mary and Blake. All the way from Cranston, Rhode Island, welcome to OutlanderCast. It's a podcast dedicated to the show Outlander on Stars. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm your host, Mary Larson. My name's Blake, and I wish I had as cool as of an accent as Scott Kyle. You do have a great accent, though, Blake. No, but it's different. It's different. Like, this, I feel like this like, is, like, know, more annoying. You know that he's not going to his wife right now being like, oh, you know what? I wish I talked like this guy from Boston. Yeah, no, I don't think he does that. <laughs> as a matter of fact, I don't think anybody ever does that. They, they just were like, okay, that sounds really lame, dude. Just, just stop talking. It's a talking. great accent to <laughs> mimic, though, the Bostonian accent. If you can do it right, if, unless you're Benedict Cumberbatch, when you just you oh, can't do poor it. Thing. That, that poor thing. Poor thing. A oh for effort. God. We should have had Scott try to do a Boston accent. That would have been a really good idea. Why That'd didn't I think about that? I don't know. Maybe because... Because got... we were just so in love with Scott <laughs> Kyle. Okay, so Scott Kyle, of course, is is our interview for today. And guys, hold on to your butts, as they say in Jurassic Park. You know I love Jurassic. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Because this is a dynamite episode. I mean, seriously, guys, our babysitter upstairs, because I told you in the last episode we always hired a babysitter. <laughs> um, our babysitter upstairs, after the interview, she said, what was going on? I heard you and Blake laughing so much. And you guys have a soundproof studio. And I said, it's Scott Kyle. He is so great, so gracious, so funny. So make sure you listen to the very end of this episode. He shares some wonderful insight and some great stories that hopefully have you laughing along with us. Yeah, I, I, I can't. It must have been hard for the listener eventually to listen to me cackle. <laughs> People love your laugh, generally. <laughs> generally. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, my, my love, you ready to get into it and to stop wasting everybody's time? Of course I am. Let's, Let's get it. to Scott. Let's do it. This episode of Outlander Cast with Marianne Blake is sponsored by The Gathering in Cologne, Germany, which is held on March 10th through 12th in 2017. At this event, you can see various actors of the show Outlander, like Grant O'Rourke, Stephen Walters, Stephen Cree, Andrew Gower, Lawrence Dobies, and Scott Kyle. They're going to be attending this event in Cologne, Germany to meet their fans. After a successful first edition in 2016, again, fans will have the possibility to meet and chat with participants of the show. There you can get information about behind-the-scenes action and get your personal picture or autograph with one or more of the actors and enjoy to meet fellow fans from all over the world. You can learn more by visiting www.thegathering2017.de. There you can get all the information you need. But get this, you can enjoy a 10% discount for your purchases there using the coupon code OUTLANDERCAST during checkout. Now that's going to be OUTLANDERCAST, just as one word. No space in between Outlander and Cast. And once again, that will be for a 10% discount. Dragonfly and VIP tickets are close to selling out, so you're going to want to check that out soon. Once again, thank you so much to The Gathering in Cologne, Germany, held on March 10th through 12th, 2017, for sponsoring today's episode. 
Joining us today is Scott Kyle, a Scottish actor best known for his roles as Clancy in the Angel Share and for the film Kilo 2 Bravo, in which he played a real-life soldier, Corporal Stu Pearson, in a story about a small unit of British soldiers in Afghanistan. He also has an extensive career in theater and on screen and is currently the artistic director of the Bathgate Regal Theater in Scotland, for which he is very passionate about and is inspiring local people of all ages to express themselves in the theatrical arts. But we all know him as Ross in Outlander from season two. Scott, thank you so much for joining us today. No worries. It's a pleasure to be here. What exactly was your drive to start acting? Um, I think I've always enjoyed storytelling. Um, in the house, if you were telling a story, you had to be able to hold the audience or someone else would take the audience and the story from you. So uh, living in a house with my big brother, I had to be very good at storytelling. Otherwise, um, you'd get told to shut up and somebody else's story was more interesting. So I think I've been telling stories since I was a kid. So, um, yeah, storytelling's kind of pretty much been something I've always done um, and just took that throughout life and ended up going to school, doing a bit of storytelling and performing and then college and then obviously um, getting a chance to work on films and TVs has been a, a total gift. How did you come into Outlander, speaking of TV, and, and what was your audition process for Outlander like? Like, what happened? Um, well, believe it or not, I had actually auditioned for Outlander a year previous to auditioning for Ross. Um, at the time, I had no idea what the show was or anything about it. And I was auditioning for a hairy Highlander called Angus, believe it or not. Hey, we know him. <laughs> uh, and it said, it said a, a hairy Highlander right away. I thought, well, I can't grow a beard because I've got this baby face. I can't grow a beard. So that's, that doesn't sound like me. But I went down, I did the audition and never heard or thought anything of it. And then obviously a year later... I was performing at the Edinburgh Festival and I got a phone call from the agent saying Outlander. Um, so I gave it a quick Google and it, obviously by then it was now a TV series. So when I auditioned previously, there was nothing on there about it other than the books. But now there was a TV series. So my wife and I sat and watched all the episodes and then I got a three-line audition. I had, I had three lines um, and it was a, a scene around the campfire, the one where um, Angus spits in Kincaid's face. Yep. Do you know the one I'm talking <laughs> yes, about? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yeah. Uh, and believe it or not, Willie was in that scene when I first read for it. Oh, wow. Character Willie. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so I went in and I, I, I did an awful lot of prep for a three-line audition. I had subtext the whole line. I had subtext all the different actors, all the different characters, who was doing what and why they would do that. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I went in and audition, did my – well, i tell you something. When you're auditioning for Outlander, there's, a, there's different uh, processes and people you meet. If you are auditioning for a lead, you meet Suzanne, the casting director. If you're meeting for one of the smaller parts, uh, you meet Simone. I went in, supposed to be meeting Simone, and Simone was away seeing a show at the Edinburgh Festival, and I met with Amy, the assistant. So that gives you an idea of, of, of how, what I, th I thought. Oh, God, Simone doesn't even want to meet me. It must be a teeny wee part that I'm doing. Oh. Um, so I, I was meeting Amy, and, and, and I said to Amy, I've got loads of questions about the script. She said, look, I'm just here to film it. Oh. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, that was my audition. And, uh, but I must have done something right, and I got the call, thankfully, and I made it onto the show. So then you were cast, and most of your time as the character of Ross was spent training or in battle. So how did you train for those battle scenes? Did you have to go to boot camp, and uh, what was that all like? Yeah, we did a boot camp. The, the, the boot camp was a number of things. It was weapons training with the muskets and the musket balls. Um, it was training with the, the, the swords and uh, the shields and stuff, the targes. Um, and we did horse riding as well as part of it. 
Ooh. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a, it was a kind of all-inclusive boot camp doing a lot of different things and um, getting to know the horse that you were going to be riding on. Um, and it might not stick out in your head when Ross was on a, a horse, but it was actually on the way up to uh, Culloden House. There yep. was a scene there where, where I was I was on the horse that day. So yeah, that was a kind of boot camp stuff. But I was I was aware that when I kind of read the script, I know that you know you've got Sam and you've got other other actors that are kind of really fit, you know, playing soldiers in it. And I wanted to make sure that Ross didn't look or feel like a soldier. He, sh- he shouldn't. He shouldn't be ready to go to war. You know. So mm-hmm. even physically. So I was I was quite happy to pig out um, <laughs> in the lead up to going in. <laughs> how many Twinkies did you eat? You know, going into it, did you? Did you have a lot of yeah, cake or too, something? Too many, according to my wife. You know, <laughs> ordering takeaways and doing everything I wanted to do. So that was a uh, one of those nice. The horrible, the horrible side of that is when you're doing something a bit more. Uh, you need to get in shape for, and you actually have to go to the gym and watch what you're eating. Mm. The other side, it's lovely where you're like, yeah, we'll have another takeaway this week. <laughs> so everybody joined you during the training process. Where the, where they're like, where like people like Sam or uh, no, people. obviously go, going into the show, um, how I describe going into Outlander is a bit like when you were a kid and you you were playing on the merry-go-round. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's already kids on the merry-go-round that's going around pretty fast, and you're on the sideline just picking your timing of when you're going to jump on. Yep. And you need to pick your timing. You need to get on. And hopefully, if if you've you've done a good job, they'll let you off safely and you can maybe come back another time. <laughs> so that's how I felt. So I, I went in with the Gregor Firth, who played Kincaid, mm-hmm. and we did a lot of the fight stuff together. Um, we did the the musket training and stuff with a lot of the other guys that were from the Lallybrook men. So they were already in when we came in, and we were just kind of tagging on to the end of what they were already doing because we'd been doing the the fight sequence stuff before that for Preston Pans. We were doing the stage fight for that. So, um, so yeah, it was me and Greg and I did did a lot of things. He didn't do the horse riding with me. I did that on my own though, because but I we knew by that time he was dead. Oh <laughs> yes. <laughs> so you obviously knew well in advance. You got the script and everything. You saw that he was going to die uh, by that. Yeah. It, well, the, in the first, the biggest shock for me, obviously, you know, the funny thing is, as a fan of the show, which obviously I am, so you're watching the show uh, on the on the TV, then you get the script through. The first thing I said was, I can't believe they're killing Angus. This is unbelievable. Yes, yes. <laughs> so that was the first thing, you know, as a fan going, oh, no, oh, this is mad that they're killing him. Um, so, yeah, that that was the first shock. And then, obviously, as you read on, um, Kincaid dies in the same battle, uh, the, the battle just just, just uh, earlier. But, but what I was going to say, the funny thing is I'm saying that I read Angus first is, as an actor, you read the script back to front, right? So just explain this to folk. When you get a script through... You, you don't open it from the first page. You flip it to the back and you start reading backwards to see if you're still alive in it at the end. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you, you originally, you start reading the script back to front. So the first thing I saw was that, oh, Angus is dead because I'm reading it back to front. Then I go further on and, it, oh, Kincaid died too. Mm. And then go further on and I'm going, thank God I'm still alive. So that's all <laughs> Jeez, it might have been a different story though if you were on Game of Thrones. I mean, I'm sure all those guys must be wearing every day. Well, I'd love, I'd love the opportunity to have. <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah, if they make the call, they die on Game of Thrones. <laughs> you, you talked about Gregor Firth, and, and obviously you guys were, were, were playing in tandem with each other uh, for the mm-hmm. shooting. What was that dynamic like, being matched with him? Were you, were you friends prior to? Did you just get to know each other? And did you come up with a backstory no, I, aside I, I, from what was given yeah. to you from the creative team? I didn't know Gregor, um, so I met him literally on boot camp. Um, and the thing that happens when you're when you're an actor or, or in any job, when you when you're going to be relying on someone you've just met, you basically that you have to get past all the kind of 
you know, the, the shyness when you first meet a new human being. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to drop all that very quickly because you know the things against you and you have to get very close and very comfortable very quickly. Uh, because you have to skip processes, if that makes sense. We don't have, you know, normally you maybe got an office job and you've got a few weeks to get to know people, then they'll maybe invite you out for a drink and then you'll get to know each other better than the Christmas party. And it takes maybe six months before you're kind of part of the team. You have to go through that process, you know, kind of pretty much 24 hours, maybe a few days, just to quickly get to the stage where we live in each other's pockets and we know each other inside out. Mm-hmm. Because obviously both as different artists, you both got a vision. Obviously the, the, the casting team have got a vision for the script. The scriptwriters got a vision for it, and the people that are going to be filming it have. But the, the actors as well have got their take on what they see, the characters and the traits of the character. So it's really important that we understand each other because we're working together so closely. Because uh, there's no point in, you know, can the, the lines do certain things, but there's also a lot of physicality and looks and, and you know, in certain moments, who takes the lead? Even though the lines say certain things, who's going to take the lead in that scene? And what sort of things are going on? And one of the things you might have seen if you're watching it was. The public lashing that Ross gets, um, Kincaid was really peed off about that, mm-hmm. and and he played it. That he was very angry, um, and, and a couple of the takes he, he, he did he did a spit and stuff before it. Um, I don't know if it made the final cut, but there was there was he was playing aggressive, and I was kind of playing stop. I was in my eyes. I'm giving it to him. It's just we just need to take this. Mm-hmm. This is not the place to fight about it. Listen, we're not going to win this argument. So just take it. You mm-hmm. know that was a public lashing for for letting. Dougal and Angus and the other men into the into the camp, and obviously the, the, it's not played out massively on screen. But the subtext for us was we were hardly going to stop the war chief from coming into the camp. Do you know what I mean? We were only going to say no, you can't get in and risk getting uh, murdered there and then. So we thought let them in, and then we get any trouble for it, and we just have to take the the lashing for it. Mm-hmm. Did you guys as a team come up with a backstory aside from what you were given from the creative team? Did you did you work through that and trying to get to know get to know each other? Um, not massive backstory because obviously we referenced as much for the books, but there wasn't much about us. You know, there wasn't much to delve in. The nice thing, obviously, if you're working on something like Outlander, is there's a rich you know kind of resource of information that you can tap into. But Ross was kind of briefly mentioned and Kincaid even briefer. In the books, so um, so yeah, we just we just had the basics that they they're Lallybrook men. They you know kind of they, they've got their wives. Um, Kincaid's got his kids, uh, and they're just kind of normal guys that are going about their life until they get uh, swept up in this 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 army movement that's going to war. You know, so it, it was it was just kind of not a massive massive details background. You know, kind of but just enough to go. Yeah, we we know where we've came from and what we are. And obviously, it's more it's more about playing the the situation of what's happening to the guys as opposed to a massive, massive backstory, if that makes sense. So talking about playing into the situation, were you allowed to ad lib or interpret your lines to give a personal flair to Ross? Um, on on a show like Outlander, they've been working on the script an awful long time. So the opportunity, I would say, as a as a new guy coming in, I wasn't going to say, "Oh yeah, I'm just going to change all these lines." You know, <laughs> it wasn't. I didn't feel that that was something I was going to do. On other projects, like I worked with Ken Loach, who's a, a UK director, and he he likes to work without scripts. He likes actors just to play the situation and ad lib. Um, I worked on Kajaki, the British war movie, and it was a true story. So you kind of had to stick to the facts. And on Outlander, I kind of took the same approach that let's stick to what the guys, these these writers are the best in the world. You know, they're working on Outlander for a reason. Let's trust what they've written and they know the story better than us. So let's stick with what they've got. But there was a few kind of opportunities for a wee ad lib here or a wee ad lib there. And there was actually one scene where, uh, the scene where um, 
we did not run. You know the scene where Ross says to Angus, we did not run. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When you read that on the paper, on the, on the actual script, it, it was that, that scene was kind of wedged in between uh, two other scenes around it. And when I read it, I thought it would have played out a bit better if that was the first part of the shot. That it starts off with we did not run, and then it focuses on the main cast, and they do what they're doing um, the whole way through it. And I thought this, and I kind of expressed it to Stephen, who I was working with on it, and uh, and he says, I, I agree, Scott, and I think you should maybe ask if we could do that. So I went to Ira, and I said, Ira, look, um, don't want to step out of line here. Just I think that it would be nice if it started on we did not run. Yeah, that's the first. That's the first thing that happens is it comes down on Ross. Stephen's character Angus is there. Ross says we did not run. Stephen kind of gives a wee head nod and acknowledgement of that, and then the camera moves on and the whole scene kicks off. Because what was happening before was the scene was kicking off. Then in the middle of the scene, this we did not run moment happened, and I just thought the context of it that is suited the, the the scene that started at the top of it. Um, and I said to Ira, and Ira said, "I like it. Speak to the director." I was like, oh no, and then I had to go and speak to uh, Philip John, who was a fantastic director, I loved working with Philip, and uh, he said, I said to him, and he said, go and ask Ira, <laughs> and, and, and I said, well, I've asked Ira, and he likes it, and Philip said, well, I like it as well, and how does Stephen feel about it, and I said, Stephen's happy with it, and that was what happened, we made that change in it, um, and then, you know, I felt pretty brave to go and ask that, because obviously, such a big, big show. Um, and they've done the research and the prep, and it was just something I thought. I thought this could maybe work work just as well, if not maybe better. Right? Is that something that normally happens? Like, is that kind of like the protocol? Like, if you think, oh, you know, like I love the script, but I think there's this this one tweak. Do you go to the writer directly, or do um, normally you go to like the director? Well, I think Ira was writing that episode, so we were fortunate that he was on the ground with us as an executive producer as well. Um, I, I don't know how often that happens where there's an executive producer on the floor with you. You know, in terms of and the writer, if that makes sense, because he was doing two jobs. So I thought we were fortunate to have him. I don't know if it's a norm. Um, I, I certainly, um, I was nervous about asking it, but I thought it would it would benefit the show, and that's why I asked it. You know, in the bigger picture, it wasn't about me and Stephen and our scene. It was about the whole picture that we were painting, and I just thought it would have been it would be nice if that's where the scene starts on those two, and then it moves away and let let myself grieve. Mm-hmm. You know, and Stephen just processed because he was looking after Rupert um, as Angus. So, and yeah, I, I, I don't know if it's the norm, but I, I felt comfortable enough to ask it. There's been other times when I maybe thought something, and I know that it's not my place to say. What, you know, kind of if that makes sense. What other kind of back and forth did you have? Did you ever have with uh, Philip John, the director of Preston Pans, or any other kind of back and forth with any of the creative team uh, on the show while you were there? Well, I was in six episodes, and I was very fortunate that uh, I got to work on four of them with Philip John. So I was really happy to work with him. I thought he was a fantastic director. Um, every director's different and they do all different things. And you, your role in it as well. Sometimes directors have worked on the show before, so they've got a way of working. Sometimes it's their first episodes. And, and with Philip, it was it was his first episodes when I went in. So it was my first episodes and his. So he was kind of new new kid on the block as well. Um, but I love these process. We come in. Any scene you come in, we come in, we have a couple of minutes chatting away about the scene, we then read out the scene, he asks any thoughts on the scene, and then we say, okay, everybody happy, let's shoot this. Um, I, I really like that. Not every director you're going to work with has got the same process, but um, I particularly enjoyed working with, with Philip. Um, but also those were the bigger scenes, you know, they were the bigger episodes, so maybe that was it as well. I had more to do when I was working with, with Philip, you know, kind of. So, um, so yeah, that, that was kind of my favourite stuff, was be, being able to feel that you could have a a chat, you know, and we, we also, depending as well, we were all staying together on the Creef Hydro um, up in Perth, 
and that was the first week. So you're going for dinner with Ira and uh, and Philip and stuff. So there's chat over dinner, of course. So that helps the next day on set. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It's not you're not just seeing them in the work environment; you're actually seeing them socially as well, mm-hmm. which I think was a great benefit. Is that dinner like a, a big group thing, or is that uh, like a one-on-one type deal? And is it is it um, almost like an open door policy? Like, hey, let's all talk about this right now. No, it's, it's just basically the the hotel is there when when uh, and and we arrived the day before filming, so we went down to the bar and. Uh, Sometimes, I mean, one day I went down and it was just Ira. So me and Ira sat and had a few beers together, um, which was great. I mean, what an interesting, fantastically talented man Ira was to, to sit and hear his stories, you know, working on Star Trek and everything else. So it's fantastic. And then there's some nights where you go down and there's six people already there. There's some nights you go down and you're the first person and then six people turn up. So it, it just depends. You know, there was, uh, there was nice nights where um, we were sitting with Sam and Kat and, you know, kind of all, all, this, all the stars, essentially, of the show. Uh, just having dinner and sharing stories and having a bit of a laugh and then there's other nights you go down and there's just you know a couple of people and there's other nights when people are working and other people aren't working so, uh, so yeah it just, just depends and I, I think I had a bit of everything I think I had some one-on-one with folk and had some group chats and inevitably we're all there for the show so inevitably t- chat turns to maybe the episode you're on or or, or you know kind of what you thought of that day's work or, or what's in store for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So it seemed really, really cold there on set when you were obviously filming the show. And, and from what I'm told, the, the winters there in Scotland, are, uh, especially the latest one, was was pretty tough. Uh, but oh, also no, see- they're all lying to you. It's absolutely roasting hot. That's just <laughs> fantastic acting that we're doing there. <laughs> yeah, it's the same thing here in Rhode Island too. Don't worry about it. Acting. We just we just look so cold. Uh, those pale blue skin. That is <laughs> that's acting. We do that. We're like chameleons. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's freezing cold. It's absolutely freezing cold. Uh, so so how, do you, how do you keep it light? Like it's, it also seemed like despite the fact that it was so cold, it seemed like you guys were having like a genuinely good time. Especially when you were all together, and especially you know when you were all drinking together, at least within the context of the show, it seemed mm-hmm. like you were having a good time. How, how do you keep it light? Um, yeah, I think because some of the scenes that you do are so dark that inevitably the humour comes in in the dark moments and stuff like that. Um, I mean, I think one of the ones was in Angus's death scene because it was very emotional for everybody on the show. You know, I mean, obviously I had only met Stephen Walters, but I'd watched the show, so as a fan. I was going, this is a really sad day on set that, that Stephen's character's dying. Um, but people, they started then taking bets on what they thought Stephen was saying when he gargles with the blood in his mouth. You know, the Angus <laughs> dying. <he's>, <laughs> so, you know, kind of, it was a sad day. And it was, there was people who were emotional on set, particularly the longer serving cast members and crew. They were upset because that was, you know, Stephen was leaving mm-hmm. and he'd been there since the start. Um, but yeah, quite quickly, people start taking it. I'll, I'll put my money on that he said this and now, and there you know, loads of rude things getting said. so so yeah that 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 sort of keeps it the the mood light and to be honest i mean the guys are pretty good they 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 huddle around in in the cold days and share a coffee and a a funny story and try and keep the mood light because some of the stuff you're doing is very dark you know and and sad as well very emotional some of the stuff you know so so who of the cast is telling those funny stories uh, Mr. McTavish is a wonderful storyteller, <laughs> um, and he's got lots of them. So yeah, Graham Graham's a great storyteller. Um, he if Graham's on on, it's a bit like being back in the house. You, you don't get the floor much if Graham's there because he's such a fantastic storyteller that um, that he just goes from one great story to another. Um, so so he's great. Stephen's a wonderful storyteller, but in a very different way. Stephen's more one on one. 
So you like to you like to get Stephen and, and he gets your ear. You know, he sits with you one on one and tells you a fantastic story. He loves the Beatles. He's always telling you about the Beatles in Liverpool. You know, he's, <laughs> he's, he's very proud of his hometown. Um, and uh, and and Grant's uh, wonderful in the sense of a great debate. Uh, Grant Grant loves to throw a curveball at people and get a debate going. So that's very interesting. You know, political or otherwise, he likes to throw in a wee <laughs> an opinion about something that gets everybody going. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's everybody's got different different skill sets, um, and uh, and it's funny sometimes maybe someone's sitting reading a book. You know, like I remember we were on set one day, Katrina was reading a book. You know, kind of. I think Sam had his head in lines. Uh, I, I was just sitting relaxing. Um, Stephen was doing what he was doing, uh, and Grant just started a, a conversation. Next minute, Cat's head come up, see the opinion on whatever it was they were chatting about, and again, I got a whole debate going and a whole chat going, um, and uh, and those days are good as well. And so I just sometimes I just sat like a fly in the wall. <laughs> just sat and listened to what was going on. Can you take us through what a regular day on set was like for you? You know, just from waking up and what you would have to do. Um, well, what would normally happen is a, a car would pick me up either half four or five in the morning um, with one of the drivers, the fantastic guys that get us there safely uh, to and from set. Um, you jump into the car under the cover of darkness, um, close your eyes. Wake up on set, they would put you in the trailer, get your costume, get you dressed, um, then they would put you into makeup, um, put you back into your trailer, leave you there until they need you, and then you would be called onto set and they drive you up to set. Now, when I told my mother this, she thought it sounded very, very glamorous. And she said to me, oh, wow, they send a car for you and they get you dressed and they bring you breakfast in the trailer and then they put you in and they sort your hair and they fix all your makeup. And she says, oh, it must be great to be a star. I said, Mum, see, you look at it that way. I'll tell you what's actually happening is actors were, were so unreliable that they don't let us make our own way to set. They send a car so they know exactly <laughs> where we are at all times because we're not <laughs> trustworthy to get ourselves there. Then they put us in our trailer when we arrive and they say, we will bring you your breakfast, so don't go missing. There's no reason for you to leave this trailer. Just stay there and we'll bring you your breakfast. Then they send someone to get you dressed because you're not even competent enough to do that on your own. So they bring someone to make sure that you're wearing the right clothes in the right order in the right place. They then take you around to makeup because you can't even uh, put your own makeup or your own wig on. So they get somebody to do that for you too. <laughs> and then they put you in your trailer and they say, do not move. There's no reason for you to leave here. Don't go missing. <laughs> and they, they maybe bring you something to eat there and then they take you up on the set. Um, well, they've kept you away from set all day because the real workers, the real talent are there making the show. And then they bring you up, they drop you in, see your four lines or whatever, and then they take you back and lock you in the trailer again where you can't do any, <laughs> any, cause any trouble. So that's what's really going on. <laughs> that's what I tell my you mom. You painted anyway. a very different picture. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I kind of wish my life was like that. Just tell me where to go, where to be, and just take me there. <laughs> <laughs> so you talked about being, you know, sitting down, getting fed, getting this makeup and hair, you know, Let's talk about your hair. <laughs> how did how did they put that hair on your head? Well, um, here's the thing. Some of the guys with the long hair um, got very, very expensive wigs, like six thousand pounds. It's real hair. Wow. Um, and they, and they, they're very custom made to your head. Um, obviously, Ross going in was such a huge character, such an important person in the whole story <laughs> that I had got somebody else's wig that didn't fit my head. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, so uh, Anna, who does the makeup, makeup, she's a head makeup uh, artist. Uh, she had to do my wig every day because it was such a pain in the bum. And um, she says, "I'll do this. I know it's a horrible job, but I'll make sure that I do it every day so that it's happy." Because I had to pin pin it 
in loads of places because it didn't actually fit my head. It was, uh, it was for somebody with a bigger head than I had. So, oh <laughs> so yeah, so that, that was that was the hair. Um, but it was strange because I, I looked at myself in the mirror one day and I, I'd seen my dad. You know, I'd seen my dad at my age when he was in a band. You know, and I've never been in a band, but I've seen, I seen my dad and myself for the first time. So um, that was terrifying. Oh, man. <laughs> that, that's a terrifying day for any man. Just see, seeing your dad and yourself. <laughs> Normally guys see that when they're losing their hair, you know. <laughs> they say, I'm sorry to look like my dad. <laughs> yeah. See, it's an upside down world I live in. It's crazy. Yes, yes. <laughs> so getting back to uh, you and Gregor, I, I wanted to talk about... Um, was there any intimidation going into this whole thing? Like, I know that you weren't a fan, but then you became a fan watching it. Uh, and then you were just suddenly the answer to Angus and Rupert for everybody in Lallybrock. How was those people, Angus and Rupert, were so well established and, and really well loved? What's that like mm. getting into it? Um, it, it was very sad the day, the day that we did the first read through of, of, uh, of the scene where. Um, Angus dies. Uh, Ira stood up and read out a poem, a wonderful, beautiful poem, um, and it was called "The Death of Angus Moore." Um, and it was really sad, and and it was one of those horrible feelings as the new guys coming in. You're going, God, you know, I know that I end up being pals with Rupert, and I felt really guilty. <laughs> I felt really bad, um, but I, I think, to be honest, Ross and Kincaid were a vehicle for, in my eyes, anyway, were a vehicle to help. Rupert and Angus, that was their purpose essentially, and, 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 a, and a, why they put them in is what I mean, I mean the, the reason they were there, I think was, was maybe to, to make the emotional connection and say the things that Rupert and Angus probably wouldn't have said to each other mm-hmm. uh, i.e. what's mine's yours and yours mine mm-hmm. that lovely little scene that we had that was a kind of feeder scene for Angus who watched us and then turns around and said you can have my dirk and you can have my my whore as he calls it right? <laughs> and Rupert goes what you daft but you're not getting anything don't want your dirk she's not even yours to give he says so but I think we were we were the kind of feeder you know what I mean we, we, we were given emotional scenes that that rather it, it would have been different having Angus and Rupert doing that it wouldn't have probably felt right I think that's why they put um uh, they put Ross and Kincaid in there to represent you know what it is like going to war. You know for the, for the common man and, and how terrifying it is, and, and the, t- the two guys making a pack. And the horrible thing was, is and, and I said to Gregor, Gregor, they're really kind of a short straw. He drew the short straw in the sense that he dies in the same scene <laughs> as Angus. Do you know what I mean? Who's who's a huge character on the show, and he knew that. And I and I said, well, I, I've also got the, the the task of I've got to mourn your loss at the same time that the whole audience are mourning the loss of Angus. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I mean, so in many ways, I was going. Maybe they won't give a toss about Ross and Kincaid because Angus has just died, and it, and it's Angus and Rupert that they'll be caring about. Um, and and as you've seen the episode, obviously, I think I'm very very lucky that they they focused a lot on Angus's death, but the reaction and and the mourning and reaction of death, they kind of gave that to me. They utilised me. They 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 focus quite a bit so I, I felt when I watched I was like wow they've stayed on me the camera stayed on me quite a bit longer than I was expecting mm-hmm. and I think to be honest if I'm really honest I think that was uh, hats off to Katrina um, Kat she she left the camera with me in that scene and what I mean by that is that as as the leading actress in the show if she had done anything at all you know in terms of a performance the camera would naturally would have followed her where she was going mm-hmm. and she was very very gracious and very kind and, and she just kind of left me she, she kind of gave me a moment said there's nothing more I can do in character obviously but as an actress she kind of left me with the camera if that makes sense so she went away 
she kind of sneaked away in the scene as well, kind of just left left Ross mourning. But in a performance sense, I was very grateful to her for leaving the camera with me because the camera just stayed with me. And, and I ended, I think it's about a minute long scene. Mm-hmm. And going in is a, a kind of, I'd, I'd say one of the smaller parts. I wasn't expecting to get that much screen time and things like that. You know, normally the other things that end up in the cutting room floor just because they don't have time for it. Mm-hmm. So I was, I felt very lucky um, to, to be given the, the, t- the time that we did. And, uh, and both Gregor and I felt absolutely like we'd won a watch going, going into the show and getting the scenes that we had. And, you know, loads of people can go in for a few episodes and, and no one ever remembers them. And we, we were very blessed to have some really nice moments together mm-hmm. and separately as well. Well, I applaud both of you because I think really what both of you were able to bring and you especially after, um, you know, mourning Kincaid's death was you brought a sensitive nature to the Highlanders. We'd seen them so much, you know, being able to joke. And then even during the battle scenes, there were always, you know, these these loud jokesters or just strong willed guys. And you were able to bring a true sensitivity and a lot of emotion to it. So um, I applaud you. Well, thank you. And, and, and in that tough world, I also thought that. It wouldn't have been fitting for Ross to just break his heart openly in front of that room because it's a tough room with a lot of tough men. So the nice thing is, he, I think he looks alone in that moment with a camera. It looks like he is alone in the world at that moment, which he is, because mm-hmm. he's lost his best friend in the world. And he, I think he just looked lost. And I think everybody could connect with that. Everybody that's ever lost someone in their life just looked at him and went, God, son, that's how we all feel, you know, when you lost someone. So, yeah, I think I was very lucky. So you were saying how you much you how much you loved working with Philip John, uh, and especially during the death scenes or you know the the um, the will scenes, like talking about what's left and what you can give to each other. You know what kind of things were you and Gregor getting from Philip John, like specifically to try to make that scene as emotional as possible. You know, one of the nicest things was was his freedom. It's a funny thing to say um, from the director. He he let us find our way through it. You know, kind of uh, to get to give you enough takes because sometimes when you're in, you're, you're the first take, you're, you're just you're just finding where you're going to stand, how you're going to be doing it, and um, so it's kind of like a a test run. And obviously, in, uh, on set, what I say to folk is, as some of the smaller parts, you you can't take five and ten takes to get something because the the money shots are are the bigger stars. That's if if Sam or Cat need four or five takes on something that's got loads of lines or it's a very, very emotional scene, then they need that time on set. As the smaller parts, one of your jobs is is to know your lines and get it in a couple of takes because you know that you don't have... We, we can't stand for three hours while you remember your lines after forgetting them or not getting it right. So so you, you the job of the, the kind of the smaller roles, I'd say, is to make sure your preparation is wonderful and then if you get a couple of goes at it, that, that that's you, you need to get it in those takes and I felt that Philip really gave, gave us a bit of freedom to, to perform and to play and to have fun in certain aspects you know kind of to, to to play the situation um, so it wasn't too rehearsed and, and sometimes you don't get the chance to do that on, on bigger shows because the, the time is so precious Do you think it's better go. to rehearse or do you think it's just better to just do it and, and see what you get? Um, it's a mixed bag. Um, there, there's some scenes that you you like. There's a, there's a deleted scene. Uh, well, I think it's a deleted scene anyway. It was uh, the Ross gets revenge on on the the red coat that kills Kincaid. Um, and we we filmed that, and we also filmed Kincaid's death. But they, they never made it, obviously, uh, into the show for whatever reason. But uh, I had one take on the killing of the red coat. I only had one take. It was the last shot of the day. And I certainly, as a performer, I I felt 
everything I felt. Uh, you know, I, I had to condition my body, and that's so my, my body physically. As a physical thing, my body murders a red coat, and my eyes and my brain process what it does. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so to be honest, I was a wee bit shaken, um, and but I only got one take on it. Um, so you, situations like that, when you're going in, there was 12 hours I was waiting that day. I think my scene was due to be in the afternoon, and it got moved to the last shot because there was more important things going on. And knowing that you've only got one take and everybody's waiting to get home <laughs> is a lot of pressure on you. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think as a smaller part, your job is to try and get it right um, and try and make the most of it. And yeah, you can't over rehearse things, but but there is the, the rehearsing is is a lot of prep, and I think most of it you do on your own. So, mm-hmm. so, so that when the shout action, you you you, you know all your lines, everything's all their second nature, and you play the situation. Can you talk about the atmosphere during the Preston Pan shoot, particularly, you know, the the, the battle? Um, it was it's a strange kind of day because we we filmed it all in a huge tent um, to to make it as foggy as we did. We we did the initial uh, battle charges out on the open field, um, so we did the charges into the into the the, the fog and the smoke. But we actually filmed the pressing pans in a huge, big marquee tent that was full of smoke. So it was actually quite difficult to breathe. <laughs> and you, everybody was getting it out of the tent as often as possible between takes to get a breath and breathe in and then going in. But the, the mud was really thick. It was a waterlogged uh, field. Um, and obviously the, 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 the great thing and the wonderful thing about Outlander is that it's not all green screened and CGI'd. And what I mean by that is that you can see the red coats that you're fighting. Mm-hmm. You can see the Highlanders next to you. The it's very, very it's a, a total gift that you can see everything and, and your eyes get to see it. So your imagination and your brain gets to process it and acting it actually becomes a lot easier. Whereas if you were doing a green screen scene when nobody's next to you and you have to imagine it all, it's, it's much more challenging if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So having the the ability to have all the red coats and the horses and the field and the mud, um, it's actually very, very helpful. It's much better than doing it inside the studio. You know, kind of. Um, and it's uh, a green screen. Obviously, the, the the two most talked about battles in television, I think, in in most recent time, actually, actually, as as much as I can remember, is the Battle of the Bastards and Game of Thrones and Preston Pans for Outlander, mm-hmm. and they were both wonderfully shot and unique battles. Of course, in completely different ways. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think sets you? I'm not sure if you've seen the Battle of the Bastards, but what what do you think separates? or sets you apart in Outlander from Game of Thrones and what what kind of personal feeling uh, are, do you get as a, as an actor or a viewer of those shows? Um, I mean, I, I don't know in terms of, um, I can't speak for any of the kind of the fans of, of Game of Thrones, but as, as, kind of, as a Scotsman and as an actor that performed in Outlander, knowing that the, the battles actually took place in a real world, not in a fiction world, knowing that Preston Pans did have a battle, knowing that the Culloden stuff, which which you knew was coming up in season three, had actually happened in Culloden. You were kind of you were representing, you know, ghosts of past. Does that make sense? It was mm-hmm. like you you were in a fictional world, but you were kind of telling a true story. So it was a different kind of weight of responsibility. And when you stood on that field looking around, you you really did feel that you were following in the footsteps of of your ancestors. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm, obviously on Game of Thrones, I don't I don't, I don't know because I've never been on it. But I imagine that obviously it's very much a kind of fabricated, wonderful story that's been told. But you you don't have that historical responsibility mm-hmm. in the sense that you know a lot of people are going to watch Outlander, and and although there's aspects of it you know which is the creative team have got involved in that they will look at the the press and pans battle and people will have a picture of that's what it was like. Mm-hmm. 
So you want to make sure that you're part of something that's, that, that you say is one of the things that people go, it's an iconic scene, you want to go and see this. You don't want to be part of the one that say, have you ever seen that? They didn't <laughs> get it right. You know, so, so that that kind of pressure I say is difficult, different um, than, than I would say. I can only imagine what it would be like on Game of Thrones, but I would say that for me it was, as a Scotsman, uh, walking on those on those on on that mud, um, kind of thinking that you're representing you know, your ancestors and people from the past was a big responsibility and... Yeah, it, was, it could get emotional when you were looking round, going, "God, you know." There, there was there were scared Highlanders looking over at, at redcoats that were trained army, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so yeah, you, you could totally feel it. So is Culloden Moor or Preston Pans? Is that like a massive part of your culture, as like we Americans think that it is, or how the show depicts it? Like in other words, like we Americans look at uh, like Gettysburg, or you know, when Washington crosses the Delaware. Uh, as like these seminal moments that are always kind of in the back of our brains, and we're very proud of it. Is is this the same kind of deal for for people in Scotland? I, I would say yes and no. Yes, in the sense that going to school, uh, growing up in Scotland, you are told about the the historical battles, and you're told about things that happened in the country. But no, in the sense that I had never been to Culloden um, until I was obviously on Outlander. I did Outlander. Uh, the Battle of Preston Pans, and when we finished in season two, uh, my wife and I took a drive up to Culloden, um, just because we'd been involved in the show, and I thought it was a bit of a shame that I've, you know, I'm a Scotsman and I've never actually been to Culloden, so we took a drive up, and, and the strange thing was, standing on the moor um, with the tourists from all over the world, you know, the people are chatting, people are taking selfies, uh, they kinda, people are taking happy memories, like holiday photographs, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So people are going, yeah, I'm, I'm standing here next to the Fraser Stone, I'm standing here next to this. And I felt, I to- I, like my wife said to me, should we get a picture? And I said, I don't really want a picture. Mm-hmm. It's not a, it's not something I want to stand with a big smile on my face. You know, it's, it's not a holiday photo, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a really sad place to be. And um, I felt because we'd I'd stood next to 100 Highlanders, I, I, I knew what they all looked like. I knew all their names. We had befriended them. We had drank together. And then we looked out and there was the other actors, the redcoats were at the other side. So when I was standing on the on Claude Moor, I, I could see the battle very clearly in my head because we had acted it out kind of pressed in pans, if that makes sense. We'd, we had the Highlanders. So when I was standing there and, and the, the guides saying, this is where the Highlanders stood, you know, in my head, I was flashing back to standing at Preston Pans mm-hmm. with the Highlanders. And it was that picture was clearly in my head, standing on Claude Moor. And the same when they said, and the redcoats would have been over here. And I could see them in my head because I'd seen the other actors that were playing the Redcoats. I'd seen how it all looked, you know. So, so although everybody else might have been able to imagine it, I could see it very, very clearly in my head, mm-hmm. and it was very, very emotional um, being there. So, so yeah, it's part of the history, but I don't know if it's if it's as, maybe other people maybe other people have visited Culloden. Just that's just my personal take on it. That I knew of the the, the history, but I I I had never been to visit the. The places, if that makes sense. Yeah. Do you since since you live in Scotland and people have now been able to watch Outlander and see Preston Pans, for example, do you know that if other people have done the same thing as you and gone to go visit Culloden, for example, because they were inspired by seeing it in the show? I don't know that folk in Scotland is not it's not hit um, the whole of Scotland, if that makes sense. There's, there's certain fans of the show in Scotland, obviously, and I think they definitely go on the tours, the Outlander tours. But the majority of people that know about the show are, are from out with Scotland. So it's, it is kind of peculiar, obviously. Like Sam and Kat can walk down Glasgow and no one bars an, an eyelid. But if they walk down LA or something, there'd be crowds of fans all around <laughs> about them. So it's kind of surreal and, and good at the same time that, you know, kind of um, today at the, at the theatre, I was I was at the Regal today and we had uh, three fans in today. 
that came uh, from America, Scotland and the Netherlands and they got a tour of the theatre. Um, and the people in my work who probably haven't even seen Outlander yet kind of don't get it. They're mm. looking at me giving a tour to people from all over the world and they're going, why, why are they so interested in the manager? <laughs> why are they interested in Scott? <laughs> uh, you're sitting in the cafe across the road and people are taking pictures with you and the cafe staff who see me every other day are saying, what is going on? <laughs> you know, so I don't know that Scotland have kind of have felt the weight of Outlander yet, but uh, it will be amazing when it hits. Now, obviously, living there, it, I my I, one of the things I want to ask you is: Have you noticed like a big pickup in tourism because of Outlander? And what what do you think? And it's, and especially at your theater too. I mean, you just talked about mm. three Americans just showing up and being like, mm. "Hey, where's the manager? How, how does that?" <laughs> Like I'm, I don't mean to put you down, but I, and I, yeah. I, that's certainly not what I'm trying to get at. But like, mm-hmm. they were looking for your ponytail, right? Yeah, like how yeah. does that happen, and, <laughs> and how do you, how do you deal with that going forward? Um, I, I think again, I would say that I don't know that Scotland as a whole, as like people that are going to their work uh, to their office job, are noticing it. I think the, the tourist destinations are very aware of it. I think the government are very aware of it. Uh, at the Regal Theatre, we're certainly very aware of it because you know, kind of, we're benefiting greatly from the visits that people are coming over. Uh, they're visiting, they're picking up some merchandise, they're making donations, they're coming to see shows. So, yeah, we, I'm definitely very aware of it. Um, you know, our local community is starting to become more and more aware of it. But I say I don't know that uh, someone going to their work in the town centre and coming back home is, is any more aware of it. But it's, uh, it's, 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 it's surreal. It's very, very strange uh, going on because, you know, if, for two minutes every day when you're given a, a tour, uh, you're a TV star, and then when they leave, it's back to the janitor hands you the brush and says, "You better get that cleared up," because <laughs> you're not you're not a TV star to him. <laughs> you're just a you're just a manager. You're just a guy. That's, that's, that's exactly it. that's it. Absolutely. So, so talking about that, how do you balance your day job at the theater with all of the craziness of Outlander? Um, it's. I mean, what's happening just now? I don't think was ever intended to happen. I don't think anybody banked on. Uh, you know, a, a, wee, a wee Glasgow actor going in and having, you know, <laughs> with respect, very, very uh, little dialogue in a show um, and ending up kind of with, with 53,000 followers on Twitter. That was nobody's intention. I don't think that was ever in the plan. I, I think the, the, the TV gods are having a laugh down at us <laughs> at the moment. <laughs> They're just having fun. Um, but, um, but yeah, what's happened over the last wee while, the last six months is, that um, more and more of my time has been taken up um, with the tours for the people that are coming through, getting back to emails, maybe even doing interviews like this. I mean, today was my day off and I went in to meet those uh, those three fans that came through um, because it's the only day that they were in the country and it's the only day they could come to the theatre. And I thought, well, they've been so generous and so helpful to the theatre that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's an hour for me to drive to my work and an hour to drive home. So I, I drove through today and um, I gave them the tour. Someone turned up to do an interview. Um, what do you call it? Just off the cuff, the girl was the same kind of do an interview. So they then went for lunch. I did the interview with the girl. The girl left that was doing the interview. They came back over. We finished the tour. So my probably what should have been an hour long tour was six hours. Because oh <laughs> we went for lunch and everything else. So um, so yeah, it's, it's but but the theatre staff are being great. They're very supportive and they know that the, the fans have given so much to the theatre already. You know, we, we've had donations and purchases um you know steven's doing a charity album for us the highlander guys from the show did a charity calendar for us and so far the, the outlander pound the value of income to the theater is forty thousand pounds oh my word so yeah yeah exactly that's exactly how i feel about it so so therefore i think everyone at the theater realizes that 
um, it's important that Scott can get onto Twitter and thank folk who are buying things and can do the tours because we, we could not have generated that income from anything else I could be doing. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. And you, did, you should definitely take advantage of that. I mean, because <laughs> I mean, this this is your time. This is this is when uh, you've made an impact on people, and people have really responded to you. And not only just as an actor, but at, on a personal level. I mean, you just talked about fifty three thousand or fifty seven thousand followers on Twitter. These people care about you, the person. Mm-hmm. So as mm-hmm. such, has that really changed you as a person or as an actor since the since the onset of Outlander? It's, it's been really strange. I've been at the theatre for five years. Um, when I went into the theatre, the idea was to try and save it from closing down. Um, and we've been doing that for five years. And to be honest, the team, we were all pretty exhausted from doing it. Um, and the the support, this new wave of support that's came in, has kind of given everybody a new lease of life and kind of breathed, you know, breathed uh, life back into everybody again. And everyone's kind of feeling motivated and realising that there's a bigger community than just in Bathgate that are wanting to support. And, and, and it's now, as I say, our, our, our army used to be a, a small community that were trying to save the theatre. We've now got 50 or plus thousand people uh, on Twitter that are supporting as well. And that's supporting sometimes just by retweeting something or liking or sharing. Um, some folk are buying merchandise, those that can't come over and visit, physically come to the theatre. We've had uh, people from Scotland, fans of the show that are coming. Uh, tonight there was two new volunteers who are in working one of the shows that are volunteering. Now, the volunteers are saving the theatre an awful lot of money, so they're donating their time. Um, and the people that can't get there, some of them are buying teddy bears or hoodies. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think for a minute anybody's desperately needing a teddy bear in their life, but they <laughs> want to contribute. You know, they want to support. So, so yes, yeah, it's, it's 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 a bit it's a bit crazy and maybe even uh, hard to process. But when you know when when on a project that you you've been needing a bit of support for, you don't tend to ask the questions. You just embrace it and be grateful. Mm-hmm. Um and and move forward. So um so yeah, it's it's been absolutely wonderful and long may it continue. So it sounds like you've you've obviously had a lot of challenges for the theater and as an actor and and you've met them to a plum and it's all of it has kind of culminated in this Outlander role and it's now it's it's propelled you into a lot of great things. Mm-hmm. But bringing it back to Outlander, what exactly was your biggest challenge? Do you think while filming it on set? Um, I'm trying to think biggest challenge. One of the biggest challenges that pe- people sometimes don't actually appreciate this is when you're going in as, as one of the smaller parts is, is to remain focused throughout the day, um, knowing that you're only needed for an hour, but you're waiting maybe 11 hours. Some days I say, some days if, if there's a scene needing a lot of work on it, then, then your scene gets moved to the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it's just the pecking order. It's just the way things go. So sometimes you're, you're, you're sitting in your trailer for 11 hours and then they call you out and you've only got an hour. You know, you've not got a lot to get all your stuff done, and it's it's been able to maintain focused for the eleven hours because they might they might after four hours they might call you to do your stuff. And it's trying to be focused and ready to go the whole time. And the other thing is when you're maybe sitting in the green room with the with the main cast and they've got big scenes and you're maybe waiting for eight hours, and it's to try and not distract anybody else from their focus. If that makes sense, so mm-hmm. not to be chatting because you're maybe bored. You've been waiting for a long time. It's about remaining focused on what you may be asked to do. I suppose it's a bit like a firefighter. If the alarm goes, you need to jump into action, you know. Kind of, <laughs> um, and and I think that's and one of the big things is not not take everybody there is doing a job, and it's to make sure that you don't distract anybody or take away from anybody else's job as much as do yours. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's on a personal level because of this it being a smaller role. So there's some days where you've only got three lines or, or eight lines or something, um, and you're just kind of waiting about until it suits the team. 
to do that scene. So you've got to kind of be ready to go in at any point. You can't really switch off. You know, if you've got an emotional scene, you're kind of going, right, I need to make sure that that emotion and that I, I, that understanding is still within me physically and emotionally. Because the last thing I want to do is be sitting on my phone all day and then they say, right, Scott, you're in for that emotional Kincaid death scene. And I'm going, oh, sugar, I'm not ready. I'm not prepared. <laughs> you know, that's that's not the thing you want to do. So you kind of have to sometimes maintain a, a state for quite a long time um, in, in case you're going into it, you know. So, so yeah, that's sometimes as challenging as, 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 as anything. Yeah. What was one of the highlights of being on Outlander? Um, just being on the show was a total gift. Um, yeah, I was very fortunate that I got to I got to watch some amazing actors uh, act, and I get to watch is what I mean is that I maybe had two scenes, uh, two lines in a scene. I'll give you an example of the scene where um, Claire and Jamie murder Dougal. You know the scene I'm talking about. Uh, Claire, Claire and Jamie they wrestle Dougal down and they, oh, yes, they okay, stab yes. him to death yep, right? yep. in that scene two seconds before that scene takes place my character opens up the door and says my lair you're wanted on the battlefield I don't know if you remember that yes, yep. yes. I open the door yeah I open the door and I say Can I, you're needed and he says yeah I'm on my way so basically that whole scene was run in sequence as one scene so obviously when they were doing the, the fight scene and they were coordinating it and practicing it I was in the room so I was just kind of standing in the corner and I watched the whole process of how the actors prepared, um, how they got focused, the the, the 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 fun that they had in playing with it as well. You know, the, the fight scene that had been coordinated uh, with Dougal and Jamie, mm-hmm. uh, and then Claire's involvement, and, and the giggles and fun that they had as well while making it and while creating it, and the, how the directors worked with it. So I, I kind of was like a fly on the wall getting to watch all this. And then, uh, obviously, you know, when they shout action, I've got, I've got my nice wee scene before it, and then it just runs on from it. Uh, the funny thing with that is that, as I said, you, you kind of need to get things in one or two takes. Uh, I would imagine, I, 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 I never had an issue with that, so I was fortunate, but I'd imagine it would be a very unforgiving environment. If you've only got four lines and you're holding up the whole day, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think that would go down very well. But the scene that I'm just chatting to you there just now about, uh, I, I came in and, uh, and Sam and Kat's characters were doing a scene and I just had to give the audio line. I just had to say the line. I wasn't on screen. And we did. We must have did it about twenty times. So I just kept coming in, saying my line, and I go. But I'm not even on camera, so I'm not even. I've got my jacket on, and I've got a cup of tea in my hand. You know, I'm not. I'm not on screen, right? So I just to come in, say the line, say the line, say. It. And we must have done it twenty times. And then they said, right, we're turning the camera around. Scott, this is your shot. So is that right? Fine. So I go outside. I open up the door, and my mouth all of a sudden doesn't work. So it goes, blah, 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 and I said all the wrong things. <laughs> and then the whole room burst out laughing because they'd been there like twenty times in a row. You did it, not a problem. And as soon as that camera's in your face, your whole brain just melts. <laughs> uh, and thankfully, the next, the second take was bang in the can, and they were happy and they moved on. Uh, so you're allowed one, do you know what I mean? But you only yeah. want to make a habit of it. Um, and uh, and I was, I, I thought it might have made the bloopers real, but it didn't make it, um, which is sometimes a good thing. <laughs> you know, it immortalized the uh, scene. You mess up a line. Yes, yes. So, oh, man. About that scene, uh, one question you, you'd mentioned is like, you know, you were in there and then you were in the room drinking your cup of tea and everything. Is that, was that like one shot scene or did they break that scene up into no, multiple different it, shots? Um, I, I think if I remember correctly, obviously it's like everything, it's a very, very small room. Yeah. So they do have to, they have to, they have to change the camera angle. So they, they flip it and sometimes they move certain things to, to make the light better or anything. But um, it was pretty much kind of coordinated in, in one one big sweeping move that it all happened but then they would then they, they would break it down as and when they could get the shots they needed but it was very much coordinated to be the one 
one performance, if you know what I mean, more, more stage, if that makes sense, like a stage performance where it runs from start to finish until obviously they go, right, we're turning around on Dougal's entrance at the door. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of, but, but uh, when they're doing the wide shot and stuff, it's all doing a one sequence. They're trying to get it in one shot. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, they can actually, depending on, again, who the director is and what they want to do, some directors love to get a wide shot of it all, all in one shot, and then they'll do all the close-ups and everything else as well, and then they can chop it together how they see fit and and uh, in, in the cutting room and the editing suite and there's other things where sometimes there's there's one scene that seems very simple and straightforward through and they chop it to pieces for whatever reason mm-hmm. and I, I always remember there was a scene with um the it was actually one of my last it's my last day on set it was the scene um where murta rides back and he says that the prince has got lost in the dark yes. and they're not going to collodon moor anymore so he said that you, they'll have the battle at collodon moor tomorrow and and the guy that was on the horse uh, i think it was the duke he was playing uh and uh, and it was it was one it started off as one 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 clean scene and then they started dicing it up and they actually started giving some of sam took some of his lines and murta took some of his lines and they totally changed it about hmm. so things that are interesting to watch as well you know because maybe one day you'll be the actor and they're saying right we're going to dice this up we're going to take one of your lines off we've now decided that now that we can see it all stood up we want to give that line to that actor mm-hmm Wow. You know, so so yeah, things like that happen on set, which I thought kind of interesting and um, and, and worth watching. And again, I was, I was very fortunate that in some of the scenes, I just had a couple of lines which which got you entrance into the scene. And you could get you watching off a lot, and then obviously they flip the camera around and you you do your couple of lines, and then and you you, you toddle off back to your trailer. <laughs> to be locked away until you meet yes. again. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I heard that you actually have a funny story about Roman who played Fergus. Uh, I have I have a very very funny story. Um, I, I try to keep it uh, short because it's, it's it's such a wonderful story that took place over a number of days and it was kind of not intentional. So so I'll, I'll try and be um, as, as short as I can with it. It's known as the fireman story. Okay. Now um, I'll tell you how this came about. I was um, I was sitting in the makeup chair one day and uh, and one of the girls said to me, Scott, are you a fireman? And I said, No, I'm not a fireman. Who said I'm a fireman? And they said, "Oh, somebody said one of the one of the guys that's you know one of the newer guys is a fireman." And I went, "No, it's not me." Uh, what it turned out was that the, the the makeup team were reading the script, and my character carries Kincaid's dead body into the room mm-hmm. in his arms. And I think one of the makeup artists says, "I don't think that guy Scott's going to be able to carry that guy Gregor because <laughs> Gregor's a bit of a big boy." So so that was them sussing muties. And someone says, "I think one of the boys is a fireman. Maybe it's Scott." So they're sussing me out, and I said, no, I'm not a fireman. So from that point on, every day on set, the makeup team would call me Mr. Fireman. So they'd say, hey, Mr. Fireman, how's your hose today? Right? <laughs> hey, Mr. Fireman, you know, have you, have you caught, caught any tree, rescued any cats from trees, all this sort of stuff? Every day it was going on. And one day I was sitting with Roman, um, and it was just kind of another day where you're sitting in the green room for hours and hours and hours. Um, and obviously Roman's you know, he's only a kid, you know, he's a young, young lad, so, um, you know, kind of he's he's... He's got his head in his computer game or whatever he's got in his hand. Um, and I was sitting one day and the, and the makeup team walked past and, and the girl said to me, hey, Mr. Fireman. Now, by this time, the joke had worn really thin. So I didn't, you know, I just, I, I just say, hey, how you doing? <laughs> right, that was what I said. So Roman lifts his head up from his computer game. His eyes lit up and he goes, are you a fireman? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, we've got time to kill, haven't we? I mean, we're bored here. There's nothing else going on. Why not? You know, so <laughs> I said, yeah, Roman, I'm a fireman. And he's like, wow, this is amazing. 
<laughs> and he's saying, oh, wow, he says, so how long have you been a fireman? And I'm like, eh, well, eight years. Right? I don't know where that came from, <laughs> eight years. Uh, but he goes, oh, wow. Uh, he said, that's, that's amazing and stuff. Uh, he says, so you do acting and you're a fireman? I said, yeah, you get good days off as a fireman and stuff, right? When someone shouts, Roman Scott on set, right? So that was the end of that, and I never thought anything of it. Till about two days later, I'm sitting again, and it ends up with Roman and I just waiting to do something. And, uh, and we're bored again, waiting for a few hours. And I said to Roman, I said, Roman, do you want me to tell you a wee bit about when I was a fireman? One of the things that happened to me? He's like, oh, yeah. So he puts his <laughs> computer game down. He's like, yeah, yeah, we're here. I says, okay. I said, so well, one day, I said, there was a huge fire. Uh, it, was, it was in a high-rise building. So this high-rise building, about 22 stories high. And the second top floor was a blazing fire. I said, so we arrived at the, at the scene. We quickly realized that we couldn't get up to the... There was a woman at the top with a baby in the top floor. We couldn't get up the stairs to her because the second top floor was in fire and our ladders couldn't go past the fire to get above her. So we were really stuck in, in a tough situation. I says, uh, I says, do you know the, the Arsenal uh, soccer goalkeeper? He's a soccer player, the Arsenal goalkeeper, Peter Cech. And he wears a funny hat, the goalkeeper, if there's any soccer fans out there. So Roman's like, yeah, yeah, I know the guy. I says, well, he was walking past and he says to us, you know, he says... It might sound like a silly idea, he said, but if if you want, tell the girl to throw down the baby and I'll be able to catch it. I'm, I'm the <laughs> Arsenal goalkeeper. I'm, I'm I'm world famous, you know. I'll catch the baby. So we we dismissed it as a silly idea that you know we didn't give a second thought to. Uh, but as the fire was getting higher and higher and the woman's getting more and more desperate, you know, we realised we couldn't help her otherwise. And and uh, and and so we said to the woman, said, "Ma'am, ma'am, uh, we've got Peter Check here. He's the Arsenal goalkeeper. If you throw down your baby, he'll catch it." <laughs> say no 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 I'm not throwing my baby off a burning building no way uh, and, and the Arsenal goalkeeper Peter Check says to us could I speak to him so we said uh, yeah yeah on you go so he says ma'am ma'am my name's Peter Check. I'm a soccer player I'm the Arsenal goalkeeper if you threw down your baby I promise you I will catch the baby right? <laughs> so the flames are getting higher the woman's getting more and more desperate and eventually she succumbs and she says I'm going to throw the baby down so she throws the baby off the building this giant of a man, Peter Check, he's six foot seven. His hands like the size of, you know, kind of a giant, giant hand. And he, he runs across the street in slow motion. He leaps up into the air with his huge hands. He catches the baby. He bounces it twice and kicks it. <laughs> <laughs> and Roman's face, his face, his eyes were popping out of his head. His mouth was open and he's like, what? <laughs> and I was rolling about eating the carpet. I was in tears rolling down my eyes because he, he bought the whole thing. And, and what I try to say to folk is the only reason that he didn't go, nah, you're pulling my leg, is because it wasn't me that told him I was a fireman. It was someone else. Yes. That makeup artist set the whole thing up. <laughs> she she said, hey, Mr. Fireman. I didn't tell him I was a fireman. Someone else told him. And he said, oh, you're a fireman. I was like, yeah. <laughs> so like any story I told him he was going to believe. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah, that's the fireman story. And 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 f the, so the nice thing, about, I was rolling about laughing. He was not impressed. He was not happy. <laughs> and he kept saying to me, "He's like, you're not funny. You're not funny." And I was like, "I says I'm the funniest guy you've ever met, Roman." I was laughing my head off. And he said, "I don't like Scottish people. English people are funnier." <laughs> and I was howling my head off. So so from then on, any time anybody was in the green room, I, said, I kept saying, "Roman, why don't you tell the fireman story?" And he's like, "Shut up." <laughs> so. Oh. <laughs> So, that yeah, is that's, amazing. That's, that's, that's a great story. That is a great that's a story. Fireman story. So I hope I didn't take too long to tell it. But, no, it's uh, perfect. If, if I'm telling you in person, I can take half an hour to set that whole thing up. <laughs> <laughs>
Scott, I can listen to you tell that story uh, for hours and hours. Yes. So please don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you. And this was really great. Thanks for taking the time to have this conversation. Where uh, where can people find you uh, on, online or it, how can we help support the, the Regal Theatre for you? Uh, yeah, you can, the Regal Theatre has got a lovely website that Fraser Murdoch, who worked on Outlander, has designed for us. So it's very much animated. Everything's moving. And that is www.bathgateregal.org. Um, you can find anything about the Bathgate on there on their own Twitter as well. If you want to check that, it's Bathgate Regal. Um, there's a Facebook page, it's just Bathgate uh, Regal Community Theatre. Um, and myself, there only is one. I know that people have got personal profiles and public profiles. Well, I only have the one, and it's just my, my Twitter. And I think it's Scott J. Kyle, number one on the Twitter and it's just Scott Kyle on Facebook. Awesome. Um, so yeah, so yeah, that's, that's where you find me. No, I'm normally there chatting away to people. <laughs> Thank you so much, Scott. I just have to tell you, all of our listeners were so excited about your interview. You are incredibly gracious online with your interactions with the fans and everyone, you know, just, just fell in love with you and your character. So speaking from the fandom, I just wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. Well, thank you. I owe them so much. Um, so that they, without them, there wouldn't be a show, and we wouldn't, uh, you know, we'd be struggling along as a wee theatre. And just now, we've got new mirrors and a new bar and everything, thanks to Outlander. So, I'm eternally grateful. See, what did I tell you? <laughs> right? <laughs> that story were about you, Roman. You, oh my God! You can't Mystify help but laugh. I can't. I can't. And you can just picture Roman. He's just so precious with his little French accent, <laughs> saying, "You little Scottish people aren't funny." I can't do it. <laughs> but you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But, uh, that's, that's what we're going to do. I do not win the accent award. I obviously cannot be in films <laughs> pretending to be a different uh, person. So, what, what a great interview. This might be one of my favorite interviews I think that we have ever done. I would agree. And you know, as he was saying, he's Scott was very, very open about like his part not being one of the leads and that he often spent times just hanging out in his trailer waiting and he might Talking just have like fireman. a couple <laughs> minutes on screen. But it's some of these people, you know, the more lesser known players in Outlander that just can share such unbelievable stories that you don't always get to hear about because we are so focused on Sam and Katrina and Tobias and Ron and Meryl like this this was a little little hidden gem that yeah it, it kind of reminds me actually of what Tara said in our previous interview like these guys Sam Cat and and Ron and Tobias they all have their talking points because they have been coached by stars or by by uh, the the production studios or whatever they've been coached to talk about certain things to get a specific message out but the beauty of this Gonlander series uh, and guys like Scott Kyle is that they're here they're talking just to talk and they're here to have a good conversation and they're also here to let you know about their experience and what they felt was most important about their Outlander experience, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I, I really feel like these are good, genuine conversations. They're not coached. Scott, you know, he's just a regular guy who's in charge. He's the, like we talked about. He's the manager of uh, of the Regal Theater. And here he's talking about Outlander and he's so grateful. You can tell how thankful he mm-hmm. is about being part of this crew in this cast and having all the benefits that it affords him for the Regal Theater, right? Yeah. It makes makes perfect sense. And, I, and that's why I really enjoyed this genuine conversation with You Scott. know what just makes me sad, though, is Scott is kicking off our episodes with the Gone Lander theme. Now, Gone right. Lander means that they are no longer on Outlander, guys. <laughs> and there was a bunch of us who were like, maybe Ross survives Culloden. Maybe we'll still see him. And, uh... I got I a feeling that he, I don't think he does. You I'm not know, gonna lie. what 
I would love is just for like someone to have a ponytail marching off in the distance <laughs> when we come back to season three so it could have hope that maybe Ross's character lived and they just didn't need to have Scott come on over and they were just like that ponytail that ponytail gives you hope <laughs> I seen that wig before I know, I know that wig because it didn't fit Scott to begin with so some other <laughs> some other guy can wear it so yeah this is this is the beginning of our Gonlander so Gonlander is going to be a series of interviews with people who are no longer on the show and yet have awesome insight just like Scott gave today. We can't tell you about the next one quite yet, but it will be coming very soon. And I think you're going to be pretty pleased with who it is and uh, what they represent. So I'm not going to lie. It's kind of a big deal. It's just kind of a big deal. That, that's all I'm going to say. My love, are you ready to close out the show and uh, move on? Yes. All right, let's do it. We want to thank you all so much for listening to the latest episode. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All of our handles there are the same. It's OutlanderCast. And I also want to welcome you to join our exclusive Facebook group. It's called the OutlanderCast Clan Gathering. A lot of um, our insight and questions come from the clan. And it's just such a privilege to have such a tight-knit group of people who really engage in awesome conversations. And we share photos from vacations when we go, when people have gone to Scotland. It's a really great group. So I welcome you to come and join us there. And I also welcome you to become a patron of our show. So Blake and I have talked about our babysitter. Um, producing this show does cost a little money. And it is a lovely hobby of ours. But... We would love any and all support. We gotta pay the bills, baby. Gotta pay the bills. So Patreon (laughs) is a really cool way to show support for podcasts like ours. You go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash OutlanderCast, or just click on the support tab at OutlanderCast.com, and there are different ways. You could donate a dollar a month, three dollars, five dollars, ten, twenty, and there's all different rewards for you for each level that you pledge so it might be a simple thank you it might actually be that we mention you here on the show and some of the top levels actually have you being a guest on the show so really it's just our way to thank you and help make this possible because outlander cast is a community effort we really strive for that making sure that we have listener feedback with the with the clan gathering this show is for you guys and i really just wanted to thank you so once again patreon.com slash outlander and speaking of the community uh, i want to also invite you to take a look at the Outlander Cast blog. You can find that at outlandercastblog.com and there you can see all of the amazing jobs and articles that our writers have written um, in our the amazing job that uh, our editor-in-chief Ashley Crawley does and also we have a very special article uh, with 10 personal questions with Scott Kyle that is just an Outlander Cast blog exclusive content so there you'll be able to learn about all his favorite movies or whether or not he likes haggis if he drinks a certain kind of beer you know the personal questions that if you really like this interview with scott Kyle, it gets you a chance to to know him just a tad bit more and uh, maybe help him out with the regal theater and uh, while you're there at the outlander cast blog check out some of the other more recent blog posts we love the staff writers on the outlander cast blog we actually had three new additions recently to the blog mm-hmm. it is growing it is thriving and it's it's awesome because it's not just the regular news that you see. Right. They've got interesting information on the actors. They have insightful um, posts about just themes or situations that some of the characters might have gone through. So be sure to check it out, especially, you know, those days 
when, you know, those Saturdays, those Saturday nights at nine, when you say, what am I doing? What am <laughs> My, I doing? I have such, I have no social life. You have a dram and you say, <laughs> I wish, I wish I could see my favorite people on TV right now. Instead, pull up your iPad and head on over to the Outlander cast blog. And then you can revisit Outlander in a different way through different eyes. And as always, I do want to call out uh, Ashley and all of the senior writers uh, and Janet, uh, the associate editor, uh, for helping us out with the questions for Scott. Again, we wanted to make sure that we got things that nobody else really had talked about with Scott. And they helped us enormously. So thank you to Ashley and to Janet and the senior writers, uh, Holly and Denise and Anne and everybody that's that helped us out oh my god we couldn't have done it without you we never we, we never could do it without you so that's that so ladies and gents this is the time we close our show I'm so happy to be talking about Outlander again <laughs> but until I talk about Outlander again I'm going to be talking about the Gilmore Girls I know we're plugging this show right now because it's coming back on a Netflix and we're really excited about it you can find our Gilmore Girls podcast by searching You've Been gilmore Or just Gilmore Girls. We're there on, on iTunes. We're, yep. we're there at Gilmore Girls. And uh, if you really can't get enough of Mary and Blake, check us out on maryandblake.co. It's our brand spanking new website where you can find all of our podcast. Uh, and uh, that's it. That's uh, all the blogs, too. That's all I got, kiddo. Until next time, ladies and gents, I'm Mary Larson. My name's Blake. And you've been listening to Outlander Cast.